Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Is hair a material? Are biscuits a material? Are crystals a material? Is plastic a material? Is porridge a material? Can gases be a material? Are eggs a material? Is water a material? What do you call everything that isn't a material? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh at you, I didn't. And yet you continue to do so. <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to Handmade, the making podcast with real talk about materials. As always, I'm your host, Anna Pajajski, and this episode I talked to artist Helen Karnak about enamel. I first met Helen when we were both working at the Institute of Making, and I found that every time I chatted to her over lunch, um, I learned about more and more of the awesome projects that she's been working on um, throughout her career, and she always had an amazing nugget of material knowledge that I didn't know about before. So I was really excited to sit down with Helen and record this conversation during the coronavirus lockdown. I started by asking Helen how she first got interested in enamel. Well, actually, I started... I guess my interest started when I was at school because I unusually had an art teacher who was a jeweller. And so I have an O-level in jewellery, uh, which is probably very rare. I don't know how many people have jewellery O-levels, but I sometimes come across people with the same qualification. Mm. And it kind of ages me too, <laughs> my O-level. <laughs> um, and I think that sort of sets me off in being interested in various materials. And I went into an art foundation and then decided to go on to study metal, jewellery, silversmithing and something called related arts, uh, which was everything else, <laughs> everything mm. else material. Okay. And I went to, <laughs> I went to um, quite a traditional um, um, department in a university where they had about 800 students at different levels studying oh, wow. various jewellery and silversmithing things. <laughs> wow. And I did a BA that was um, about testing things out, trying things out, uh, learning very traditional techniques, but then taking them apart, which really suited me. So it was really about a lot of setting things on fire, <laughs> um, <laughs> letting things go wrong a lot. I, I was really lucky, I think, because a lot of places I think at the time were more um about this is how you do something mm. and I didn't want to do that so I found the right place for me 
and um, experimented a lot with trying out different materials and processes and was taught by some really amazing crafts, men and women. Um, so I learned a lot of techniques. We would often, you know, try and we'd learn a technique over a week and then we'd sort of take that apart over the next few weeks. Um, oh, that sounds fun. And that, that, that was a four-year course in which I also studied in Germany and I also, it was a sandwich course, which meant that I worked for people. So I worked for an amazing, mad silversmith called Jocelyn Burton and for the uh, furniture designer, Tom Dixon, um, where I did a lot of welding. Um, and during this period, it's when I kind of first came across enamel that I was taught enameling, which most kind of metalworking students will be taught that as a process. Mm, which um, brings us nicely onto our material for the podcast. Yeah. Did you want to say anything else about the career stuff before we... Yeah, well, I mean, that, that, that was 26 years ago that okay. I finished <laughs> studying and I, I went straight on to setting up a studio in London and I've been working as an artist, working with different materials and processes um, and also teaching all along the way here and abroad so I've been a professor in Berlin I've worked in the USA Russia and Norway Um, oh wow yeah maybe we can take a little step back and define what this material of enamel is and how how you go about using it um well at its most basic it is um ground glass um, which is coloured with minerals and metal oxides. Um, I, it comes in a powder form, um, which you'll predominantly see being used in jewellery, I guess, or in small-scale metalwork. Um, and it's used mostly in traditionally with, with, on gold and silver. And I had trained to use it as a student, but then... About eight years after I left college, I did a. I assisted an, an artist in a workshop when I was teaching somewhere, and um, she used an industrial type process enamel. Mm. And as a lot of my work is about drawing, and I had always been striving to find a material that I could use with metal to draw. Um, this was a, a kind of um, a moment of. I found the right material. So um, as soon as I used this industrial material, which is um, basically very finely ground glass mixed with either porcelain or and or electrolytes, and it's used um, in industry, um, in signage, so all our London underground signs made of it. Ah. Your might be made of it. Um, pots and pans. Um, and some scientific equipment too. And so it's, um, it is quite, uh, it, it's a process I think that could be enjoyed by all kinds of people because you can use it in a very technical and challenging way or in a very kind of at uh, the opposite end. It can be used in a very experimental 
um, and quite abstract way, I think. Mm. So you mentioned ground glass there and also metal working. How mm. do those two relate with the process of enamelling? Basically, you're fusing uh, the ground glass to the metal. And so um, the two surfaces fuse together um, and um, I work predominantly with steel, with um, industrial enamel, and you have to find a way to um, adhere the two surfaces. So you open up the molecules of the metal in order to allow that to happen. How do you do um, that? I, it's a very basic thing that I do is I sandblast the surface. Okay. So you're opening up the, the surface of the metal, which you don't have to do with other metals. Um, it's a bonding thing that the two the two materials need to fuse. So it's not just sitting on top, it's actually fusing into the surface of the metal. Mm, okay. So it sounds like the process involves quite a few transformations from sort of ground glass into mm. this like fused surface that is like irreversibly yeah. bonded to metal. So how yes. could you take us through the process of um, of applying enamel to a piece of steel, for example? Yeah. So the whole process of making the enamel in the first place is, 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 is done in industry now. So I buy my enamels um, and they're often made for large scale industrial projects and I get part of you know the, the, the material that's left over basically when mm. I order it um, and that um, comes to me in uh, I buy a liquid form of the enamel um, and I apply I, I um, as I just said sandblast um, the surface of the steel um, and then I have to one of the most important things is mixing the material um it needs to be very well mixed and then i apply the material by dipping the steel into the liquid enamel um and this it was a sort of innovation in the material um from only being used on flat surfaces to being able to you know enamel say kitchenware jugs and all sorts of 3d forms mm. um, which happened in about the 19 um in about 1900 um and so when i once i've dipped it you leave it to dry to a sort of plaster um plaster surface and once it's dry you can in my case draw into the surface using something very sharp so my favourite drawing tool is a scalpel. Um, and this is a sort of scraffito uh, drawing process. So drawing into the material. Okay. And after I draw into it, I then fire it in a kiln, an enamel kiln, and it's fired at around 820 degrees Celsius. Okay. Um, and... Then after that, you have to. There's there's a lot of waiting in between these processes because mm. a lot of the process is about um, being very patient. And I find if I rush anything or want to speed it up, it will always go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so um, one of the most important processes to me is is after the 
the enamel comes out of the kiln. Um, I do a lot of grinding of surfaces because actually what I'm really interested in is the metal below. Mm. Um, so whilst industrial enamel is seen as a really good material in industry to stop corrosion so you coat a surface and you know you won't get rust you won't get corrosion i i like to do the opposite so i'm looking for corrosion okay i'm looking to disrupt the surface and to find the surface below the enamel and so i do a lot of grinding of surfaces um and i guess that's it's quite a painterly thing as well. I see it as quite an important process of um, working on the surface. And you obviously, when the enamel comes out of the kiln, it's um, glossy. It's a glass, glossy surface. And I'm really interested in matte surfaces. So grinding down from the gloss to a matte. Ah, oh, um, interesting. Healing some of the things below. So you often, it, there's a, kind of something that goes on in the kiln that's really interesting so there are a lot of things that are very much known about what's going to happen in a process and then there's the absolute unknown Mm. so even if you've planned everything you may find you open the kiln and something else has happened (laughs) that's definitely my experience with dabbling in ceramics <laughs> never comes out like you think it will <laughs> no. and this can be very frustrating but it can also be something very enlightening and mm. quite incredible and sometimes incredible things happen and I found that the grinding process is very much a revealing process because you can reveal some of the things that happened in the kiln um ah interesting they're sometimes quite inexplicable but I've because I've I've done a lot of teaching of enamel I always describe it a little bit like cooking that you have a recipe and you have a method and you sort of follow it um and then go off course make up your own (laughs) kind of (laughs) uh ideas about what you're doing um but also need to make a note of what you've done because there can be something very small that happens that if you don't record it or you don't notice it, you won't know how to do it again. Ah, that's very scientific. That's exactly what you have to do in the lab as well because, you know, repeating experiments is such a huge part of the scientific method. You know, it's not really even considered a proper experiment if you can't repeat it and show you get the same result again. Ah, well, this is just the same. I mean, I have to... Repeat, repeat, repeat. And I've always said um, to people that I've worked with, if you get something you like, just repeat it immediately because mm. you're just not going. You're you're not going to know if you leave it ten minutes. You won't necessarily do exactly the same thing again. So, um, yeah, it's very much uh, repeating. Mm. Is it easy uh, to to achieve the same results again? I think it's actually. It, it's, it can be really difficult or really easy. Mm. I mean, I've, I've done some things that I've never been able to do again, even though I've tried. <laughs> be something, re- well, it's not random, but it can be the con- combination of different materials. It can be uh, a, 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 a second mm. of time. Um, it, 
could be the temperature of the room. Um, the, I mean, you get used to a kiln. Um, so if you're using a different kiln, you then have to find out how to use that and, you know, what temperature it's really working at. Mm. Uh, and I think I do use pyrometers, so temperature gauges, but I, I tend to just use my own sense of timing now. Ah, interesting. Something will be ready. Yeah. Um, it strikes me, though, that you can measure the temperature all you like and measure the number of milliseconds that it's been in there. But you mentioned a process earlier that might be slightly more difficult to control, which is the rusting of the metal. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> and that's it's not exactly an organic process, but it's definitely mediated by the environment. And I would expect, or you can prove, you can say that I'm wrong, that trying to control and repeat that rusting process would be very difficult. It's really difficult, but it's, I, I think that that's why I really love it because um, it is unpredictable and you'll get something different. And it's, I mean, I will have to sometimes just do it over and over again to get the right thing. So depending on when, where you are, I mean, the studio I have at the moment is right by the Thames at mm. Woolwich and I get really great rust there. Okay. And I, I don't do anything at all complex. I put stuff in water and leave it um, for different amounts of time and then leave parts of it out in mm. the air and leave things to dry, but I can get some great results in that space. And is that noticeably um, different from other places you've worked in? Yeah, it's really quite different. Amazing. Um, yeah, but then also it very much depends on the metal. So um, when I buy metal, sometimes it just doesn't rust well. And I think sometimes, not often, but sometimes they use low-carbon steel for enamelling. Mm. Um, but the higher-carbon steel rusts better and then just different batches of the material seem to rust better too and the interesting thing is that then when the work goes out to different places it, it changes while it's out so yeah. if it comes back it, it can come back looking quite different that's amazing so it's still sort of living and changing throughout its life yeah and it's it's what i i'm really interested in and it very much relates to something that i've been trying to do more recently with my work as well um so yeah, I find that part of the material really fascinating. Mm. So let's talk about some of your recent projects then. Yeah, I was going to um, talk about a project that I have done with my uh, long-term work and life partner, <laughs> who I share my workshop with, um, David Gates, who's a furniture designer. And over the years, we've made work together. But, you know, it's funny that even if you share a space with somebody, you, you, you know, you don't often find the time to work with them unless you make the space to do that. And we were working with a gallery and the gallerist, um, Sarah, asked us if we'd like to make some work together, which was a perfect way to start to do what we kept promising to do mm. 
which was about four years ago. So David makes furniture um, mostly from wood with some metal. Um, and the previous work that we've made that we've got quite a lot of around the house was if um, using the enamel as a sort of decorative surface, so embedding enamel panels into the surface of of a piece of furniture. Mm. Um, so I've got a nice um, medicine cabinet that's got a red cross on it. So that's kind of all nicely embedded in the surface. But we wanted to try and use the enamel as a constructional um, uh, part of the work. So it's quite one of the things that you have to think about with enamel and um, objects is that you have to try and do everything constructional before you enamel or leave holes and things to rivet or join things together. So you have to think about joining because you can't just, um, it's not easy to join things after um, the work's been enamelled. Ah, right. So you have to do things in a slightly different order or plan ahead. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you have to plan ahead. You have to think about what, what how you're going to put something together. Mm. And also, the it's interesting that the enamel, if you enamel on a on a curve, um, there's a lot of strength in in that place. It's something that doesn't really kind of, if you think about it, it doesn't really make sense. So people can never understand how I can I make enamel vessels as well, bowls, mm. and. Whenever I'm showing somebody how to enamel, they can't understand how the enamel can stay on the curve when you put it in the kiln. They think it's going to fall off. Ah, right. Sort of flow around like molten glass. Yeah. yeah. And it's the same with a sort of corner in enamel. um, That Actually, it can be a point of strength in the piece. So we made some quite sculptural furniture works that are half metal, half um wood uh metal enameled metal so um they're constructed and they hold each other up so the enamel pieces hold up the wooden pieces so instead of David maybe making a joint uh, a dovetail joint at a corner we were joining um the wood to the enamel panels ah interesting did that present sorry go on I wish I could show you a piece of that. It's quite interesting <laughs> now talking about it and trying to make it make sense um, without seeing the object. Yeah, well, maybe we can share some photos of it on the podcast social yeah. media so people can yeah. have a little Let's look. what I'm talk- trying to talk about. <laughs> Did joining the enameled metal and the wood present any sort of material problems? Um, yeah, I suppose... I suppose so, but I suppose the main thing, as you just said, was that we would we would have to plan ahead and then troubleshoot. Mm. So, and I guess we've made quite a lot of pieces together now, and each iteration of a piece, you work something else out from the previous one. Um, we both really enjoy the oxidization that takes place between um, certain woods and metal as well. So yeah. the oxidization that takes place between oak and 
steel, for example. And so we'll promote some of that and make, make you know, inky, inky points where the mm. two pieces join. So it's a really lovely amalgamation of materials and yeah. a, a bit like the process of, of promoting the oxidization and rusting of the enamel steel um in this it's about promoting this oxidization of the oak or other materials um mm. when they're put together as well so so quite a lot of cold joining um we never use glue mm. <laughs> it's it's quite a funny kind of thing uh, as, as a sort of student of 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 working with a material you're always told to veer away from glue and find a different way so <laughs> the purists lot, approach <laughs> lots of um putting things together through um yeah tabs um i'm just trying to think what we did maybe some some joining a little bit like um some of wood, some wooden joinery, but with metal and um, yeah, instead. that was one question that sprung to mind. Actually, did you have to treat the metal like wood, or treat the wood like metal, or find new ways to join the two? Mm. That's a really interesting question. I think, yeah, they're, they're such different materials in a way, but yeah. yeah. Um, there's a we did quite a lot of slotting and then drilling and pegging and sort of putting the two materials together so slotting the metal into the wood and then drilling and pegging through yeah. those areas and and you get some really nice amalgamations of materials um and it's something I really want to do more of and wanted to kind of we'd we'd like to make bigger work because actually you you could but um, at the moment, I'm working from home, so I'm working smaller at the moment. Mm. So, yeah, so that's something for the future, I think. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Yeah. So that brings me nicely on to my next line of inquiry, which is um, enamelling through time. So you just mentioned that your enamelling processes have changed in the current time because you're having to work much smaller. Yeah. Um, I think like speaking more broadly about enamelling as a material and a process, um, Mm. you mentioned before that when we were able to sandblast, that opened up new materials for enamelling at the beginning Mm. of the 20th century. Mm. Um, How long have we been enamelling for? and What's the sort of historical story of it? We've been enamelling for... since the 13th century. Okay. It's quite incredible, really. I, I often work with people that just are amazed that it's still the same material. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we've, we've been enamelling across the centuries and we've innovated, I think, and we still are innovating. Uh, it, it's a me- I, sorry, I'm, I get quite sort of gobsmacked about the fact that it's a material that um, has been used by so many people over so many centuries. And yet we're still innovating and using it in different ways. But you, I mean, you can, in jewellery, for example, I guess you still recognise those early kind of enamelling um, pieces. That some of the earliest pieces were rings mm. um, that were made in Cyprus or found, um, and the fact that you know clearly it people enamel in the same way today really that that enamel was first used in in that time um yeah yeah I suppose in that time that was when glass working was really getting going I think mm. the Venetian glass blowers their heyday was sort of like the 14th 15th centuries mm-hmm. um so I guess in the 13th century perhaps people were starting to to experiment with glass um, but do you think it would have been the metal workers that would have picked up the enamelling rather than glass blowers? <laughs> it's, that's quite uh, uh, um, yes, <laughs> probably. <laughs> but although I'm biased, sure, yeah, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> I think probably, um, yeah. I think so. Although enamelling takes pl- place on glass as well, and I'm not sure about the um, when you know the first enamelling on ah, glass right. took place. Interesting. As well. Yeah. Yeah. But I think probably in metal because um, in jewellery and small scale um, objects, people were trying to add decoration and colour from an early stage that. Yeah, it was probably within metal that it was first seen. Mm, interesting. And I guess we spoke about rusting earlier. One of the places that people be familiar with enamel perhaps is enamel bathtubs. And yes. I guess in that setting, the enamel is there to protect the metal from rusting. Yeah. So maybe before we really knew about, you know, percentages of carbon in steel and how to make stainless steel, which came much, much later. Mm. Was enamelling maybe used as well as a sort of metal protection material? Yeah, I mean, I'm just trying... I mean, I suppose in food and cookware, it's been used for quite a long time, and that's definitely for protection. Mm. And more and more 
now as well in innovation. You'll see it being used in industry. Um, see it in tunnels, in cladding, say on the underground. I think there are quite a lot of enamel panels, not just the signage, but you know some of the yeah. tunnels that are, say, white, that will be enamel. Oh, wow. One of the major innovations really was out of necessity um, on the London Underground. The signage was, um, I think, uh, early early days of the Underground, the signage was enamel. <laughs> And if you see an old enamel sign, which you don't see too many of these days, but you you might see chips in the enamel. If if you see a sign on the underground that's chipped, it's it's more than likely to be an earlier piece of signage mm. um, because the innovation is that it's a lot thinner now and they can screen print this very thin um, enamel coating. Oh, wow. But the enamel signage on the underground went plastic for some time until the King's Cross disaster in 1987 when um, many people were killed from fumes. Um, from oh, from burning plastic. plastic? Yeah. Oh, wow. And when the signage went back to um, enamel. Wow, that's and, amazing. Yeah, I mean, obviously very tragic so as well. <laughs> it's really tragic, but a massive sort of innovation um, in all our signage so you'll often find me outside tapping on things <laughs> checking we're checking whether uh, the signage is enamel or plastic but you find a lot more enamel signage um, because it's so resilient um, and I think it actually is surprising because Enamel and large-scale enameling um, was used quite a lot by artists in the sort of 50s and 60s. Um, there are some huge enamel works um, that you can find. Um, I, I, I was working in Berlin for some time and there were, I noticed there were quite a few um, murals and communist murals there that were enamel, mm. vitreous enamel. Um, but you don't see that as much now, although that sometimes um, London Transport commission artists here to make enamel cladding, um, and there are some interesting examples of that around London. Oh, so it's interesting, mm -hmm. the, the return to the old technology, as it were, sort of away from yeah. plastic. Yeah, yeah, it's I, it is interesting, and I I feel like that opened up um, the arena again for public art and for mm. for different people to use it somehow. But I think there's a real gap actually because I before I spoke to you, I was having a look at how it's being used in industry at the moment, and I could see that it would be great for um, an artist to go and work in big industry, mm. um, and I think that used. You know, there used to be a lot more projects that artists did in industry. Um, All right. And, yeah. Maybe that could be um, your next project. <laughs> yeah. I did. Um, I, I was, I'd started to work at the Institute of Making on working with different surfaces in enamel. 
And I'd actually got a small bursary to go and work in an enamel factory to try and work larger, but that's obviously on hold at the moment. But oh, that sounds cool. Be able to do that as well. So, so what's next for you then? What have you got coming up? Well, I the the next thing I was going to be doing with the enamel was. Um, going to work in a factory and that that's been put on hold as I said so Mm. I've actually ended up um because I haven't really been able to use my studio properly since lockdown so I ended up actually going the opposite way my intention was to work larger scale and I've bought a mini new mini kill so I've gone a bit smaller at the moment so (laughs) I'm just trying to um, continue with experiments with with different surfaces. I mean, I think it's a lifelong project. I don't think um, there's so much to be done with this. Um, and actually, I always work with steel at the moment, and I decided over lockdown to return to copper. Mm. So that's what has come next just through um, being locked down, but... I usually work with very a very minimal palette, um, but I decided I wanted to um, experiment a bit more with colour. Mm. But I really enjoy the sort of natural colours. So I've been working with fluxes, and I suppose then, again, you're working with the colours that you get through the firing of the metal with the enamel. Mm. So you're seeing the colour of the metal through the glass so um yeah yeah. it it surprises me given how sort of extensive your experience is it surprises me that there's still experiments for you to do with it (laughs) oh god I feel like it's never ending (laughs) Um, I think you could work on it forever and Mm. you know in just one one way as well yes in a very minimal way, you could just keep going in a very minimal way yeah so if people have been interested to hear about enamel the material and enameling the process where can people find out more about it i suppose one thing people can do is just to go outside and tap signs <laughs> you're traveling yeah if you've got an enamel bath or any whiteware you can have a look at it and it's always interesting to see if you can spot where it's been um where how it's been fired because see because the glass melts um you have to hold it on something so it doesn't get stuck oh yeah to the surface so there will always be some black points somewhere where it's been held on spikes. Oh, that's a fun right. piece of homework. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a fun piece of, I suppose, forensic, material forensic science. Yeah, I mean, I I went to college um, at Allgate East and they used to have the most fantastic um, London underground signs there that were very old and you could explore the sort of edges and mm. you could see how thick the enamel was on that. Um, and the London um, London Transport have a museum where they keep um, the underground signs, but I don't think it's open to the public. Oh, that's um, a shame. And the signs are made by a company on the Isle of Wight called AJ Wells. 
and um i've been i've been there a couple of times and they are very um they won't they're not allowed to share the colors that the underground oh really um, no <laughs> and also if they have a kind of misfiring mm. they're not allowed to to give those signs away either which is a bit of a shame oh so, that's a big shame yeah yes but um it's very it's very interesting and they they have they do have an artist's room there and you can go and work there too oh that's cool yeah Nice. Well, thanks so much for chatting to me, Helen. It's been really nice to catch up and brilliant to talk to you about your work because we've worked together for, I suppose, a few months leading up to lockdown, but never had the chance to sit down and speak at length about all the stuff that you do. So, yeah, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So that was the brilliant Helen Karnak. Thanks so much to her for coming on the show. If you want to take a look at Helen's stuff and the artworks that we've been talking about in this episode, then check out her website, which is helenkarnak.co.uk. That's all for this episode. This was episode number 50 of the podcast. Um, If you're still here, thanks for continuing to be here and supporting the podcast. Um, If you're new, then do go back and listen to past episodes. There's many a material treasure to be found in the back catalogue. If you're enjoying the podcast, then do rate and review us um, on Apple Podcasts. That would be awesome. And thanks to those who have supported the podcast by giving a one-time donation. Um, It really does help to keep the podcast going, paying for the various things that I have to pay for. Um, And... If so, if you're enjoying it and have the means to support them, that would be awesome. It's um, at supporter.acast.com forward slash handmade. Say hi to us online. We're on Twitter at um, Realtalk, that's R-I-A-L talk, and on Instagram at handmadepod. Thanks as always to Dave Shepard for our marvellous cover art and to Alex Lathbridge for the music mix. A special thank you this episode to Steve Thompson, who was an epic legend and helped sort out the audio production on this particular episode so thanks steve that's all for this week join me again next week where i'll be talking to lucy rogers about making and her first material love wood thanks for listening and i'll see you next time on handmade hello handmade listeners i'm barry max day i'm ben vandervelde and we'd love you to listen to worst foot forward our podcast all about failure Each week we are joined by a guest to discuss the world's worst something. From detective to invasion, train to horror movie, we dive into humankind's darkest depths in search of the absolute pits. We've even had your very own Dr. Anna Porshysky on the show twice. In The World's Worst Material, she shared her innate hatred of graphene, and during our live show, she let loose on sea salt and is now persona non grata in the town of Malden. On Worst Foot Forward, we've learned that conspiracy theorists think rocks aren't really hard, why one French physicist invaded the Channel Island of Sark, and how exactly to make a wasp gun. While also uncovering the railway station of the dead, the doctor who put goat balls into human scrotums, and the West End musical funded by bird poo. Subscribe to Worst Foot Forward on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Check out our website, worstfootforwardpodcast.com, and join us for some fun-filled zero worship. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. 
Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns, so you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50-80% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.